Christmas Day is over. Or is it? Appreciate those of you that are here rather than hitting the after Christmas sales. Anyone go out this morning early? A couple of you. Wow. I have nothing to say about that. But it's hard sometimes to switch gears. I was talking with someone last night just at the, the difficulty of, okay, we're at Christmas, 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 Christmas. Oh yeah, church. And, and sometimes it's hard to, to sort of put all that together and, and switch gears. And, but yet, it's all part of the same story. It's all part of what God is doing in our lives. And it doesn't end on Christmas Day. Now, some things are okay to end on Christmas Day, like toy assembly. I don't know, I know a lot of you don't have young kids anymore, but I do. And so yesterday was just one child after another, Daddy, put this together, Daddy, put this together, take this out of the box. And then before you get the last one together, the first one, this broke, fix this. And, and um, <laughs> One particular item I was putting together, and, and um, I praise God that John was with us yesterday helping to assemble things, because I would have never been able to keep up. One particular item I was putting together was this tabletop foosball table for the boys. And um, I put that thing together three different times. <laughs> and I was following the directions every time. And, and so I have it out, and all the pieces are scattered all over the table. And, and I put it together, and I'm following the directions step by step by step, which in itself might be a rarity for some, but but we're just starting with the instructions. And and I'm putting it together, and I, I get to where most of it's together, and I look at the bag of parts, and I have way too many parts. And, and I'm looking at it, and I look at the picture on the box and realize the instructions are wrong. That's a little discouraging. Do you see why we don't like to look at instructions? So I take it all apart and, and put these little bumpers on the sides, the outsides of the men and put it all back together and I look down and there's still too many parts. And I look at the instructions and I had followed the instructions exactly. And I look at the box and, and actually it was harder to tell because these were little washers. And, and I've learned the hard way in the past that washers usually have a purpose. And, and so I wanted to put them in where they go. And, and finally I find that they go between the, the little men and the bumpers and you could barely see it in the pictures. The instructions said nothing about them. So I take the whole thing apart, put them on, put it back together. Three times and I was following the, the instructions. Last night it was already broken. So now today we're going to fix it. But it's interesting how we assume that instructions are supposed to be correct, don't we? We assume that if you follow the instructions, you'll get it right. Well, in that case, what do you do if you have the wrong instructions? What do you do if you have no confidence in the instructions? By the third time, quite frankly, I threw the instructions away and went by the picture on the box. And that was the more accurate representation of what it should look like. You're probably wondering, well, what in the world does this have to do with your topic? This morning we come back to God's Word. And we've been th going through a series of Scripture alone, and, and how can we trust God's Word? And specifically, 
how do we know that God's Word is true? And in the last couple of, of messages, we've looked at, okay, what, what criticisms will the world throw at us? What criticisms will our coworker throw at us, our neighbor throw at us, someone at school, a professor in college? What kinds of arguments do they have against the validity of God's Word? And it's important that we as God's people know how to answer those. Because God's Word is true, and truth is never afraid of questions. And so we need to be prepared and able to answer those. But at Christmas time, I think it's even more important. Because if we don't have confidence in the instructions, if we don't have an assurance that this book is God's Word, then there will be a hesitancy to tell people the story of Jesus. Why would I put myself out and go tell my neighbor about the Gospel as I'm giving them their Christmas treat if I'm not even sure that I can defend God's Word? Do you see how important it is? Do you see how important it is that we know the instructions are accurate? Because if we don't believe that, eventually we throw them away and look for a picture. And we end up settling for something that doesn't represent God's Word. And so this morning we pick up that again with... with Really a third objection that people sometimes have, and how do we answer that? And we're taking a whole week on this, and at times this may be a little more technical, but I've loved how we as a church have embraced that and said, okay, give us real answers. How do we answer people? And one of the questions that we often hear is, well, how do we know that the books that were chosen are actually God's Word? There were a lot of things written at the time. The the 66 books we have here were not the only books written. How do we know that it was God's Word? One student remarked, Sure, I know the canon, or the the books in God's Word. The leaders got together in a council and decided which books best helped them, and then forced the followers to accept them. Did you catch that? And I have heard that over and over and over again. Well, they just picked the books that supported their cause. in their efforts to manipulate the church. And so this morning, we want to be able to answer that. We want to look and say, okay, this, is, this contains the story of Christ. It contains the story of His birth and His death. It contains the Gospel, everything that we base our beliefs on. Do we know it's true? Do we know the Christmas story is true? Josh did a wonderful job in worship of sharing how we move from Christmas on to being able to share the news, share the story, and that doesn't end. And this morning it's about knowing that we can share the story. I used the word canon, and we'll we'll start with just some definitions. The word canon is used to refer to the, the books that were ultimately chosen to be part of God's Word, that were the inspired Word of God that are in your Bible. But the word for canon actually comes from the Greek, And it meant standard or rod. And what they would do is they would have rods that they would measure against, sort of like our yardstick. We looked for one in the office, couldn't find it, so we have no standards in the... No, that's not. Um, (laughs) A yardstick, because whenever we want to measure something, we go to a standard, right? And that standard is objective. In my stocking this year, someone, I'm going to assume Susie, got me a little little measuring tape. And what's interesting is if you take this measuring tape and go out a yard, 36 inches, it equals every yardstick that you have. 
in your home. If you go 12 inches, it equals every ruler in your home, hopefully. And, and the reason for that is it's an objective standard that says you can measure with this and know every time. We refer to God's Word and, and the books that were ultimately included in God's Word as the canon. Because they weren't just picked arbitrarily. They weren't just picked, oh, I like this one. This one supports what I want to say. They were picked according to a standard. According to a rule. And that's important for us to understand because the basis of the objections against is that they have no standard. They have no rule. It was subjective. But we'll find that the church was incredibly diligent about applying standards incredibly diligent about making sure that we included just the inspired words of God and nothing else. And as we know how careful they were, it builds our confidence that this is God's Word. In your notes, I put remember or remember this. The church was not deciding what was Scripture. And I encourage you to write this down. You remember anything this morning, this is it. The church was not deciding what was Scripture, but was discovering what was Scripture. The church was not deciding what was Scripture, but was discovering what was Scripture. Do you see the difference? Here's the difference. If the church is deciding what was Scripture, they go through, pick some books, and say, oh, I like this one, and then, oh, it's the inspired Word of God. We declare it as true. Do you see the problem with that? This goes back to what we did the very first week. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Or God said it. That settles it. I believe it. And one way, if the church is deciding what is is Scripture, then that's that settles it. Or God said it. I believe it. That settles it. But on the other hand, if we say they were discovering what was Scripture, that means from the moment it was written, the Holy Spirit inspired it, and it was the Word of God. There is no question. Nothing the church did made it the Word of God. It already was. That's an act of the Holy Spirit. And they discovered what it was. God said it. That settles it. I believe it. And that, sort of the summary statement of the whole morning. When we think about that, it also brings some reassurances. And this is something we've said several times, and we will continue to say this and pound on this. We can be reassured that Scripture is God's divine gift to us. And He is responsible for protecting it and preserving it. It is His divine gift for us. It's the wrapped gift under the tree that He's saying, open this. This is for you. But just as you, when you give gifts to your children, you wrap them and assemble them maybe and and put them under the tree, you are, are responsible for that in the same way God takes the responsibility for His Word. Just as you wouldn't let a gift get lost, He wouldn't let a book get lost. It contains everything that He intended. His Holy Spirit is preserving and guiding the process through the hands of fallen man, but not left to chance. Some verses that are just key to to this reassurance. Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers and the flowers fall, 
but the Word of our God stands forever. Forever. doesn't mean it's going to get lost. It doesn't mean, oh, we're going to misplace it. It will stand forever. Why? Because we preserve it? No, because God preserves it. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. And that includes all of time. All of time. His words will never pass away. The Holy Spirit is the acting agent. May we never forget that. Yes, there were other writings, and we might get to talking about those this morning, the Apocrypha of the Old Testament and the New Testament. And there were all kinds of... Even, even the apostles wrote some other things. In 1 Corinthians 5.9, Paul refers to a letter that preceded 1 Corinthians that we don't have because it wasn't Scripture. It was just a letter. So how do we know? How did the early church know if a book was to be part of Scripture? What qualifications, what standards, what rules did they use? This morning we want to look at five of them. When I think about the process, though, one other Christmas story. Growing up, under our tree at home, there was three of us kids, and, and we liked to, especially my brother and I, dig under the tree. And, um, you know, there was enough times that mom would be in the back or something, and, um, hi mom. Uh, <laughs> and you could get to the presents without them seeing, and, and we, we liked to guess what was going on. You know, if you shake it right and squeeze it right and, and maybe peel open the, the wrapping paper right, you can, you can find out what you're getting. And mom and dad, people are looking at me like I'm evil. Um, <laughs> I was a child. And, and mom and dad would do anything they could to prevent that from happening. And so one of the things that they did is they stopped putting our names on the packages. Very annoying. I might use it. And, the, and they stopped putting our names on the packages, no tags, it was just a bunch of packages under there. So not only did you have to try to guess what it was, but you had to guess who it was for. And, and they had their own little code, okay? The, these numbers on the bottom, so we tried to crack their code, and now that we're adults, they said there was no code. <laughs> they just had a little chart that said, okay, number 536 goes to Ron. And number, or these five numbers. And so there was no way to, to crack this. But were the gifts gifts? Were they specific for the child that they went to? Absolutely. Did mom and dad know that? And did they make sure that they went to the right person? Absolutely. And so for us, it wasn't, if we picked it, it wasn't that, oh, I'm going to get Ken's gift or I'm going to get Karen's gift. No. And um, no, the gifts went to the right person. And even though it, it didn't say, they knew. And our job was to discover on Christmas morning who the gift was to. And actually, they did that for us. And they supervised the whole process. And I know that may be stretching it a little bit for Christmas, but to me, that's a really cool picture of what's happening with the canon. God gave his books and he gave his, his word, and he had his authors write it, and they always were God's word. They always were intended for his people. And God, through his spirit, helped us discover them and helped us uncover them into the Bible that we have now. So what qualifications do we use? 
the primary test that all of these qualifications come down to is the, the test of divine inspiration. Was this inspired by God? And one of the ways that, that they could come back to that is, was it written by a spokesman for God? Was it written by a prophet? Was it written by an apostle? We don't know exactly the test that they use, but through writings and through the writings of the early church, we, we have five that look like something the church discussed as they, they evaluated each of these books. The first was, was it written by someone with God-given authority? Was it written by someone with God-given authority or apostolicity? Does it have apostolic or prophetic authority? Was it written by an apostle or someone close to an apostle and approved by an apostle? The idea here is, is that God used the Holy Spirit, or through the Holy Spirit, inspired men, but the men that he inspired were men that he had authorized as his spokespeople. Prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament. And so one of the tests the early church went back to was, does it go back to somebody that has the authority to say this? I mean, think about it in the workplace. If you get a memo that says, congratulations, you just got a Christmas bonus for $10,000. Go to accounting and pick it up. Does who it's from matter? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, if it's from your boss or your boss's secretary, that's one thing. What if it's from your coworker who's in the next office that you hear snickering? <laughs> Do you see where it's from matters? And so one of the tests they use was, does it come back to someone that is an, a, a spokesman for God? The word apostle means one sent out by God. One sent out by God. And so the apostles in the New Testament had the authority to speak and to, be, to, to write the inspired Word of God. Did everything they say become God's Word? No. But did God choose to use them? Absolutely. We think, one question that, that I think of, sometimes I think in terms of questions as well, who else would I choose? Would I choose someone that never walked with Jesus? That never talked with Him? That couldn't confirm anything? Would I choose that person? Or would I choose the people that Jesus Himself spent three years discipling and training and teaching? It sort of makes sense, doesn't it? That God would use the people that He authorized and that he sent out. This morning we'll look at a variety of different passages, so it's sword drill time and get ready to, to just look things up. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Did you catch who he said was foundation? We have the chief cornerstone in Jesus Christ, but then the foundation of the church, the prophets and the apostles. So there's authority there. In Acts 2, verse 42, a familiar passage at the founding of the church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so the the teaching of the apostles was held with authority. 
One of the early church leaders, Ignatius, wrote, I do not wish to command you as Peter and Paul. They were apostles. And he was very conscious of the fact that he was not an apostle. And Peter and Paul, as ones that were discipled by Jesus Christ himself, carried a different authority. And so the early church, as they would evaluate documents, the question they would ask is, who wrote it? Who wrote it? Yes, the Holy Spirit through inspiration, but what human hands did God choose? There were a whole number of works, especially about 100, 150 years later, that cropped up and it was popular to use the names of the apostles. Because people would write something to the church and they'd think, ooh, if I put Peter's name on it, more people will read it. And so they'd put Peter's name on it and, and send it around to the churches. But if, if the person, if the author lied about who wrote it, then it had untruth in it and it would immediately be rejected by the church. It had to be authentic from one of the apostles or one of the prophets or a spokesman, someone with that authority. And so those pseudonymous works that were written by someone else, they were all thrown out and they weren't included. And only the works that we felt, that the early church felt that they could verify who wrote it were included. Take the New Testament, for example. Out of the 27 books of the New Testament, Paul wrote 13 of them. Apostolic authority. Of the four Gospels, two were written by apostles, Matthew and John. The other two were closely linked to apostles and carried the apostolic authority with them, Mark to Peter and Luke to Paul. And both Peter and Paul refer to them. Acts was also written by Luke as as the second half of Luke and was also linked to Paul. The two books of Peter were written by the Apostle Peter and carry his authority. James and Jude, you may say, well, they weren't apostles, but they were, they were brothers of Jesus, and the early church viewed the, the brothers of Jesus and his family and, and the apostles as having that authority as well. And the apostles and the early church approved those. You have the literature of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which we've talked about, and Revelation, who are also linked to the Apostle John. One of the books that had the most questions was Hebrews. Because today, as we look through Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. There's all kinds of guesses and conjecture. But evidence shows that the early church actually probably knew who wrote it. And they didn't have a problem with authorship. And it was linked to apostolic authority. Some view it as Paul. It probably is not. And that got lost in time. But the the people that would have been in the best place to understand that, the people in the best place to know, viewed it as genuine. So the first question is, who wrote it? Does it carry the authority of one sent by God? The second question the early church asked as they looked through the books of the Bible was is it authentic from the time of the apostles? This is really sort of just a subset of of the first one. Was it written during the time of the apostles? They they had figured out, they were were smart, that if it was written a hundred years later, that probably an apostle didn't write it. And so they they would check the time and say, when did it come about? And they had a policy on all of these things. If in doubt, throw it out. If in doubt, throw it out. 
because they were so diligent that they did not want any book that was not God's Word to be included in the Bible. One of the advantages of having it having an apostle write it, a prophet write it, written at that time, is that these people were eyewitnesses. They were eyewitnesses. In 2 Peter 1.16, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. And so one of the tests the early church used was, were they eyewitnesses? Were they there? 1 John 1.3 We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now there are many occasions of books that were written later that were, were wonderful books and were used in, in teaching of the church. But because they were written later, they were not included as inspired words of God. They were not included in the canon. And it would be much like we would use maybe the works of C.S. Lewis or, or the works of Francis Chan, some of his books. And they're wonderful books. They're, they're instructive. But are they God's Word? No. Should we read them? Yeah. And so some of the, the books that people have said, well, that should have been included, failed the test of antiquity, but were still valuable books. You have books like the Gospel of Thomas, Judas, Philip, Peter, and Mary. Some of those are not so valuable in the New Testament Apocrypha. Claims of close to 20 other Gospels. But almost all of them were written a century later and were thrown out by the early church because they could not be true. And evidence within them proved that they weren't true. So is it authentic from the time? Third test that they used. Did it come with the life-transforming power of God? Is it dynamic? Does it reflect the Holy Spirit at work in His teaching, in the principles? Turn to a familiar passage, Hebrews 4.12. For the Word of God is living and active. Did you catch those words? It's not dead it's not just empty words. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so the third test that the early church fathers used to discover is this inspired or not was does this have life-transforming power? Is this changing lives? If it's the Word of God, we know it will. This is probably one of the more convicting ones. Because sometimes we go through times in our lives where we can read God's Word and it can be empty. But the problem isn't with God's Word. The problem is with our hearts that are closed and are hard to seeing the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And I'm challenged when I think of the, the, the first church sitting around and saying, well, is this, is this God's Word? Is this not? And asking the question, well, does this change lives? And I'm challenged by, does the Bible still change my life? 
does it still impact me? Do I still read it with that kind of expectation? Because every book we have in, our, in God's Word has been shown by the church to change lives. Am I open to that power? challenge you to expect God's word to cut to your heart and expect it to challenge you and to step on your toes and to reveal things you don't want revealed can you be close to it yes but that doesn't change the fact that it is powerful Fourth question they asked as they were evaluating the validity of these books. Was it received, collected, read, and used? Was it received, collected, read, and used? Was it accepted by the people of God? And in a, a subset of that, did it have application for the church? If it was a letter written to one man that had no broader application, please bring in my cow to the barn or something like that, then, then that was not included. But was it accepted by the whole church? Was it applicable to the church? We see Paul giving instructions to pass his letters around from church to church. We see letters written to the seven churches, for instance. There was an intentionality that the church would use this and benefit from this. And so in the Old and New Testament, we have the books that were accepted by the church, that were used, that were collected. Fifth question. Is it consistent? Is it true? Is it consistent or true? The rule that they used, the the foundation were the words of Christ and the teachings of Christ. If a book varied from those teachings at all, immediately thrown out. Not part of God's Word. No question. Is it consistent and true? Does it teach different doctrines? Is it orthodox? Is it consistent with what Jesus and the apostles taught? A bishop in the early church that was over a number of churches, found that in his region, one of the churches was starting to use the Gospel of Peter, a book that is not included in the canon and was not included in the canon. At first, he didn't worry about it because, okay, the other writings are, are good and good for edification. And, but then as he, he began to explore this more, even though this had lesser authority, he began to realize that this was an urgent thing, that if people were using books other than the Bible and treating them as God's Word, it opened the door to all kinds of problems. And in that particular Gospel, Jesus' death is, is mixed with docetism, which we talked about in 1 John. The, and part of the idea was that Jesus didn't suffer on the cross. He didn't really pay for our sins. So the bishop made a special trip. Had a little chat with that church. And the book was destroyed and taken out of circulation. But it was that important even back then. Is it, con- is it consistent? See, God is a God of truth. He will not contradict Himself. 
He will not lie. In Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should change His mind. Does He speak and then not act? Does He promise and not fulfill? And so a test was, is this truth about God? Does it match what Jesus said? Because nothing else matters. And these five tests were used to come up in this case, more the New Testament, the Old Testament canon was decided at this point. But these tests were used for the New Testament. And as we look at them, as we look at the care that they took and the scrutiny that they gave to every book, we should look at that with confidence and with excitement to say, what we have is God's Word. Men of God took the time to discover truth, not just put in there what they liked. And they were careful, much like we looked at the scribes with the Old Testament and their transmission of the Old Testament. They were careful. So where do we go with that? Where do we go with that? In in about ten minutes, I'd like to give a, a brief historical sketch of where the church went with that just to, again, give us some confidence. And so, those of you that love history, cool. Those of you that don't, you need it. So, um, let's talk about the history of the canon. We divide it into two, two, two things, the Old Testament and the New Testament, because really those, those two developed separately. And the Old Testament that, that we have now was pretty much decided by the time of Christ was pretty much firmed up as the books that we have now. They, they arranged them differently. They had the law and they had the prophets and the writings or, or the Psalms. And so they were arranged differently. And, and some of the books that we've divided into two were put together. And, and some of them were um, like Lamentations was an appendix to Jeremiah, but it was still in there. But the, the canon as we have it was pretty much decided by Jesus' time. Now there was a, a council... After that, the Council of Jomnia, about A.D. 90, and some have said that are, criti- that are criticizing, well, okay, that's where they decided the Old Testament. No, 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 no. It was already decided long ago. They just affirmed it at that council, and we don't have writings before that, but at that council they said, we believe this is God's Word. At that time, they also denied the Apocrypha of the Old Testament, that that was God's Word. And that's one of the dividing points between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. But the Apocrypha from the early church and from the words of Christ even as what He included in Scripture was not included in the canon and should not be included in the canon. One of the things I like to do is, okay, with the Old Testament especially, what does the New Testament say about it? Because quite frankly, if Jesus says it's it's Scripture, we're done with that discussion. We're good. Right? Makes sense? So so let's look at what Jesus said. Turn with me to Luke 24. And this is where we'll look at a, a bunch of things. Verse 44. And in your notes, I've put all these verses because I would encourage you to read through them, to be comfortable with God's Word, to be confident in God's Word. Luke 24, verse 44. Jesus is speaking. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. 
And we look at that list and say, oh, that's nice. He's referring to the Old Testament. No, he's referring to the entirety of the Old Testament. Those were the categories of the Old Testament. It would be like us saying, well, everything is God's word that's in the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's what Jesus was doing here. If we understand, and he's using their, their categories. And so in, in that simple statement, he is affirming, he's affirming the Old Testament. In Luke 11, just back a couple pages, Luke 11, verse 51. Jesus again is talking. And he's talking to, to the Pharisees and he's teaching. And in verse 51, he says, From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And I say, okay, what does that have to say? But in, in one sentence, he goes from the beginning of the Old Testament, the first martyr of the, of the Old Testament, Abel, to the last one that we have recorded in the Old Testament. And it's in so doing, he bookends the whole Old Testament and refers to it with authority. Matthew 21, verse 42. And I just want to hit a number of these. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone? The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus here is quoting Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And He's calling it Scripture. And we go on and on in verse after verse where the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, calls it Scripture. The books that we have in the Old Testament were accepted by Jesus. Were accepted by the Apostles. A whole number of verses in your list refer to the Old Testament as Scripture. Matthew 22, 29... 26, 54, and 56. John 5, 39 through 40. Acts 17, 2 and 11. Acts 18, 28. But then let's, let's look at a couple more. Romans 1, verse 2. What did the apostles say about the Old Testament? Romans 1, verse 2. Paul is writing here. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6, and 22. Two pages over, Romans 4, 3, also as part of this same quotation. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And if you go to Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him for righteousness. Romans 9.17, just a couple of verses over. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. He's quoting Exodus 9.16, and he calls it Scripture. We can go on. Romans 10.11 quotes Isaiah 28.16 and calls it Scripture. Romans 15.4, and turn to that one just a couple more pages over. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 2 Timothy 3.16, where we say all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable. 
all Scripture, and it's referring to the Old Testament and some of the New Testament that was already in circulation, most likely. And so many more verses that we don't have time to get to this morning. But when we think of the Old Testament, it is clearly attested by Christ and by the apostles that this was God's Word. That the books that we have in there are God's Word. Extra-biblical sources, even Josephus, confirms the Old Testament canon as we have it. So it was, it was decided. It was done. It was, it was firm. It was closed. But what about the New Testament? What about the New Testament? We don't have a Third Testament that can go back and affirm the New Testament, and there never will be. We have the full revelation from God. But even within the New Testament, there were, there were verses written and the apostles wrote recognizing other books as Scripture. And this is one of the tests that they used. Okay, is this included in the canon? Well, does it have apostolic authority? What did they say about each other? In 2 Peter 3, verse 2, we read, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. And then a little bit, little bit later in that chapter, a verse that we've used before, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul, this is Peter writing, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand. I love Peter. He says, you know, Paul writes some pretty tough stuff. But where does it go from there? Which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other Scriptures to their own destruction. And it's a small phrase, as they do the other Scriptures, but Peter there is validating the writings of Paul and saying they are Scripture. They should be included. When you measure, they are included in the Word of God. Paul and his writings, 1 Timothy 5.18. I love this one. If you turn there, 1 Timothy 5.18. For the Scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Okay, catch what he says? It says the Bible says, the Scripture says this, God's Word says this. The first phrase is from Deuteronomy 25.4, which everyone accepted as Scripture, the Old Testament. The second phrase is directly from Luke 10.7. And so Paul here validates that the Gospel of Luke should be one of the Gospels. Should be in God's Word. He calls it Scripture. In John chapter 21, verse 24, the Apostle John writes this about Peter. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Paul, writing to the church at Thessalonica, speaks of his teaching and the other apostles in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it as not as the Word of men, but as it actually is the Word of God, which is at work in you who believe. You accepted what we said as the Word of God. 
And so if we're looking at a historical sketch of, okay, when did these books start to be accepted by the church? We find that they were being accepted as they were being written. The ones that were inspired by God. The Holy Spirit didn't let them get lost. He didn't somehow hide them from people, but the church was already using them. And this accusation by the world that, oh, 300 years later, some men got together in a room and picked what should be part of the New Testament is completely false. Yes, there was a council. And yes, they they ratified what the church was already using. And they had to because heresies were coming in and people were, were challenging, well, this book should be, or we think this book should be added. And so people were trying to construct a religion after their own image. And the church said, no, we have a standard and this standard will be applied. That's what happened 300 years later at the Council of Hippo. Not some construction of a religion that we should get people to follow. So we see right from the start the church is using these letters as gospel. A couple of other things, just a historical sketch. Soon after the Gospel of John was written, and we know that was was fairly late um, in, in terms of the 50 years, it was one of the last ones written, the four Gospels were published together under one title, the Gospel. One gospel narrated in four records. Not 24. Not all of these other things. These four gospels that we have. Polycarp in in around AD 115, and he was a disciple of John. Wouldn't that be cool? If I couldn't be a disciple of Jesus, maybe at least to be a disciple of one of the apostles would have been neat. And he referred to the Old and New Testament books with the phrase, as it is said in these scriptures. And so he was already at that point including the New Testament mostly as we have it with the exception of one or two books that were were under debate as scripture. In his writings, actually, we can find 15 different books that were quoted and, and referred to as scripture. Around that same time, Ignatius also referred to the gospel as authoritative in God's word. And the gospel, he meant the four books that we have, not any of the others. In reality, most of the others hadn't been written yet. Justin Martyr, around the same time, a little bit later, A.D., maybe 120, 130, he talks about how the church should function. And on a Sunday, they gather together in one place, those who live in the cities of the country, and they are to read the writings of the prophets and the apostles. And we see the practice of the early church already was to include these books as God's Word. Around AD 140, so we're about 107 years after Christ, heresies started to, to form They were already forming, but now they started developing their own canon, their own list of what should be in the New Testament. Marcion was one of those, and he really wanted a a different canon because he wanted to eliminate certain things out of the New Testament that he didn't like. And so the church started to, to codify, to come up with a list of what would be in God's Word. That doesn't mean they weren't already doing it. Do you understand that? it meant that there was a challenge and they had to answer that challenge. A 
on and on and on. 8150. We have lists that are the New Testament as we have it. All 27 books. AD 180, Irenaeus, as he talks about the canon, mentions Paul's epistles over 200 times and lists virtually every book in the New Testament. Then we get to the councils I mentioned. The Synod of Hippo in AD 393 is probably the most famous one that the world counters and says, oh, that's, that's where they decided it. See, it wasn't even true until then. And it's a sad effort to try to avoid the truth of the Gospel. Because if somehow we can deny the authority of Scripture, we can deny what it says. And I can deny that the Holy Spirit is at work. The challenge of missions and fraud and heresy and the church needing to know what to teach all led to a need for a list. And when we look at this, and when we look at the history and the care that the early church took, I pray that it's more than just an academic exercise. We could, as believers, take things and never know why we believe what we believe and basically be worthless to the world, to reaching the world. Or we could say, you know, I I want to know. I, I, I want to know where did we get the Old Testament? Where did we get the New Testament? How do I answer these questions? How do I answer someone that has seen the Da Vinci Code and is claiming the things that they're claiming? Because if we're silent, if we're silent, then we are denying the the Holy Scriptures. And we're denying the work of God. How confident are you in this book? We've spent three weeks arguing for it. Arguments that you can use tomorrow. How confident are you that you believe what's in here? That you will follow what is in here? A good test of that would be what you live. Not what you say, but what you live. One book I was reading, and I loved the phrase, and it's, you know, take it for what it is. But they said, are you a canon Christian? Are you a canon Christian? And they weren't referring to blowing ships apart with little cannonballs or anything like that. Their, their reference was, do you believe in God's Word? All of it. All of it. Not just the parts you like. Do you believe in God's Word? And do you put it in practice where anyone looking at your life could say he believes in God's Word? She believes in God's Word. And that's where the the academic, the understanding of this process, that's where this starts to come into real life, is if I believe this is God's Word, then I will obey it. I will obey every part of it. I will obey every instruction, every command... Because it is inspired by God. And I will not try to get around things. I will not try to justify it. I won't justify my lies. I won't justify my pride. I won't justify my driving. I won't justify my anger. I won't justify my attitudes. 
but I will live like I believe God's word is just that. And my prayer, as we look at the the technicalities of how this happened, is we would be reassured and we would reaffirm Scripture in our lives. Not just as a book that we know is true, but a book that we love and cherish and open because it contains the very words of God. And great care was taken in its transmission. Great care was taken in what was chosen to be included so that we would discover the gift that God had for us and tear it open like my kids did on Christmas morning and embrace what's inside. Will you take the time? This morning in your worship folder again is the next month's rooted reading. And the first of the year is a great time to start. And I would encourage you to say, okay, whether or not you you followed along this year, this next year, I am going to be committed that the Bible is God's Word, and I'm going to give it at least five or ten minutes a day. Now, my goal is that that you take these chunks and meditate on them and dig into them a little bit. But can you at least give ten minutes a day to read God's Word? Can we be canon Christians that believe that this is God's Word? Even the lists that we get really bored of? I have been blessed this year for many of you that have been going through the reading and our discussions. And I watch our discussions deepen. And I've watched many of you say, you know, I was doing this in life and and I was tempted in this way and this passage came to mind. And I have been amazed at the power of God's Word in this church in the last 12 months. I encourage you, if you're not doing it, join with us. Join with us. Be dedicated to God's Holy Word. The Holy Spirit made sure we got our gift. Will we leave it unwrapped? Or unopened, rather. And unappreciated. In two weeks, we'll do our last part in the series on God's Word, and we'll look at the different versions. Another question that everyone asks and and how the different versions apply and and how you can study them. But just at the start of the year, may we love God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I am amazed at Your power, at Your ability to preserve Your Word, at your ability to make sure that we get the gift that you want for us. And Lord, may we never doubt you. May we never doubt your work in your word, in our hearts, and in our lives. Lord, I pray that our congregation, our church family here, that one of the marks would be a people that love God's word that throughout this next year, 2011, we would be a people that are talking about Your Word, that are applying God's Word, that are challenging each other to apply Your Word.
Lord, may we not be too busy to unwrap your words. Forgive us for how many times we are. And how many times we miss what you have for us because we haven't taken the time to read what you have for us. Lord, may we see incredible results from being a people of the word. In your name.